Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technologies with me, Tiasha Zaitz. Do you know what clinical pharmacists do? For one thing, they optimize patients' medications, which can have a big impact on improving patient outcomes and patients' quality of life. In today's discussion, you're going to hear from Dr. John Horn, Emeritus Professor of Pharmacy and Associate Director of the University of Washington Medicine Pharmacy Services. Dr. Horn is the co-author of the reference text, Drug Interactions Analysis and Management, and the Top 100 Drug Interactions, A Guide to Patient Management, And in addition to over 250 publications related to drug interactions, Dr. Horn has also published in areas of cardiovascular and gastrointestinal therapeutics and pharmacokinetics. In the discussion you're about to hear, Dr. Horn talks about why are pharmacists an integral team member in patient care, why is medication adherence in patients impossible to reach, He also shared his thoughts about the potential and near future of 3D printed medications. A quick teaser, he's very skeptical about seeing that work in practice. This interview was conducted for the purpose of the movie Overdose, How Can We Prevent Medication Errors? If you haven't yet, do check out the link in the show notes to watch the movie. As part of an awareness campaign about medication safety, I'm publishing full interviews with all speakers from the movie until the end of the summer. Do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. And in autumn, you'll be able to tune in an episode about healthcare in Taiwan, an episode about Kuwait, and a series about Nordic countries. Also visit our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com to browse through other episodes as well. Professor Horn, thank you for joining me. So science is advancing very rapidly and the number of options for patients is increasing, uh, which is great. Uh, If you look at diabetes, the development of medications has uh, advanced a lot. But with more choice, there's also a higher complexity of prescribing. So the first question, is that statement even correct? So is prescribing getting more difficult or are just some medications that were used in the past becoming obsolete? I think you're really correct. The the number of drugs available is rapidly increasing and that's really a good thing. You know, we've got a lot of treatments that now that just didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago. So I'm encouraged by that. I hope that continues. I'd hate to see that ever stop. But at the same time, that opportunity brings with it uh, a fair amount of responsibility and sort of related issues associated with the use of drugs. And and that, of course, is the, first of all, the appropriate selection of drugs so that we're using um, the best, most efficacious, safest drugs we can find for any particular patient. And because of the increased number of drugs and then add on to that the increased longevity of the general population, people are living longer and they're getting more diseases because that happens as you age. 
uh, and they're getting exposed to more drugs. And I think that this increased use of medications is really fueling a lot of the difficulties that we run into in some patients from the standpoint of medication management. I recently heard um, an interesting uh, thesis in the longevity space, and that is that dementia and aging-related disorders are disorders, and the actual underlying condition for those is aging. So if we classified aging as a disease and started treating it preventatively already when people are, let's say, 40, that would mean that people would get medicalized even earlier and which could potentially bring additional challenges in the whole medication management space. So I'd be interesting to hear your comment about the amount of medications that perhaps in the future people might take, especially if we look at someone with diabetes and a few comorbidities. These people can take up to 20 different medications uh, per day already. Yeah, it's really common. We really we see people with what, your example of a diabetic patient who may also have cardiovascular disease, which could be hypertension or coronary artery disease. Diabetes often leads to renal dysfunction, so they may have kidney disease. And all of these different disease states are being treated by usually multiple drugs. And so it's not uncommon to see patients that are receiving 10 or 15 drugs a day in some of the work that's been done, when we look at just simply what effect does multiple drug therapy have on the potential for adverse events, and it's pretty clear that as you go up in the number of drugs, usually about five or six is a cutoff, where once you exceed five or six medications, almost for sure something will, has the potential to cause a problem. Some pair of drugs in that group can have an interaction or some adverse event that may be additive that's just not what you want, not desirable. And so it's really important when we start to use polypharmacy and, and multiple drugs in patients that we have good review of the medications the patients are taking and at the same time try to avoid any adverse events that might occur. And I think there's been a lot of movement, particularly in the elderly, I think things like the Beers criteria, and there's other criteria out there for appropriate drug use in the elderly, <clears throat> trying to eliminate or limit their exposure of drugs, increase their risk of dementia or confusion. Anticholinergic drugs, of course, come to mind very quickly for, for that particular problem. And it's something that's become more and more aware to practitioners and prescribers to watch for that. And it's an area where the clinical decision support in the medical record databases and in the computer systems can be very helpful in alerting prescribers and caregivers that a particular patient might be receiving excessive amounts of drugs that have, for example, anticholinergic side effects, which can make their dementia work, which is, of course, a problem of aging. So it's, it is an issue. And I think that if, and hopefully when, we get treatments that are effective in reducing the risk of dementia or Alzheimer's disease, would we'll see those treatments being applied early because it's probably easier to prevent that than it is to correct that's maybe mm -hmm. where we're going to end up. And I and I, hopefully that will occur. Probably I won't be able to see that, but uh, you probably. If I go a step back, when you have a patient that takes 15 to 20 drugs or a patient with diabetes, 
the challenge is not just that the drugs interact among each other. The challenge is that the patient might not even be taking those medications appropriately because there's just too many of them and you can easily make a mistake. And if you look at the U.S. healthcare system, if you can't afford to just buy all the medications that you need, the co-pays and everything. What happens is, as was mentioned by uh, diabetic investor David Cliff in one of the interviews we had previously, is that patients start skipping doses. So that just shows how complex mm. is the whole uh, medication management from the patient perspective and what factors impact it. And the idea is that maybe if we had 3D printed medications that would be personalized for an individual, you could give an individual one pill that would include all these medications that he's taking for various conditions. It would just be easier to achieve adherence because the patient would have to take one pill. My question here is, are you following the, the development of that field and how far do you think we still are from actually having that approved, reimbursed? We are basically talking about each patient getting a different drug. So from a regulatory perspective, it's really challenging to imagine how that would be proven to be safe. Yeah, there's a number of problems, of course, associated with that whole idea of one super pill. And especially when you put it in terms of making that specific to a patient. We can do a lot with 3D printing, and I guess we could do a 3D printed pill for everybody, but that's probably impractical and will never happen in my my estimation, not for a long time. The There are some common disease states, diabetes, hypertension, some of the psych diseases where multiple drug therapy is really common. And those are one, those are disease states where having a poly pill or however you want to call it makes a lot of sense because you could combine drugs to produce better adherence, which is really the issue that you bring up. And that's a really important issue. And there's no doubt in my mind, all sorts of data supports the fact that the more pills you ask people to take, the less they do with adherence, with being, taking their pills correctly. So I think that's a, that's an interesting approach. It, it's also interesting that I was around back when they used to do poly pills, and they got a really bad rap from the prescribers. They don't like them. The choice of combinations weren't always really the best they could be, and you know, physicians didn't like it because it limited their ability to selective doses and and really to personalize therapy. So those went out of favor for a long time, and I think that there's still a lot of people around who remember that and are have some sort of mindset against that idea. I think we can do a lot better job now than we did back then in in picking correct or more appropriate combinations, but you still got the problem of dose differences. Uh, there's a huge range of responses to drugs based on all sorts of things, and that makes it difficult to say, here's a pill that will be good for everybody. You can make a combination of pills that's really good for a person, but how do you pack that into one pill? That's the difficulty mm -hmm. that I see. And maybe there'll be a way to do mm -hmm. that someday, but I, that's going to be hard to do. You have to have a huge number of different dosage forms. From a manufacturing side, that's tough. 
Mm. Definitely. And it's also, I think that's the kind of the complexity is also seen in the decision support systems that exist for prescribing today. So in essence, many clinicians will say that drug-to-drug interaction software today is not to say useless, but very close to that, because when you've got too many medications, you mentioned five or six already before, you get alerts that something is wrong. And because there's too many alerts, doctors end up ignoring those alerts. And if the hospital is more advanced, there's a clinical pharmacist that checks the medications after the the doctor and might see that there was something wrong in the prescriptions, in the dosing, and that something needs to be optimized. And my question here is, how do pharmacists know which interactions are clinically relevant and which they can ignore. Of course, they read our books. No, I'm just kidding. This is an area that we've been working in for a very long time, as you probably know, and it's a challenge. I think that pharmacists probably are the best trained people to make some decisions about whether a particular interaction might be uh, important to a specific patient. We always talk in terms of potential interactions when we speak of drug interactions or adverse events with drugs. All drugs have potential problems. That's just the nature of the beast. Uh, And the idea, of course, is not that we can prevent people from being exposed to drugs with potential problems, because we can't do that. But what we really want to do is to prevent anybody from getting harmed by one of these potential interactions or adverse events. And in order to do that, I firmly believe, and we've been working for many years to try and educate people about this, is that the important thing is to consider each patient as an individual with that particular drug problem or potential problem and make a decision using the best information you have available about both the drugs and the patient and their disease states and the other drugs they're taking and everything else you can throw into that mess to decide whether or not it's important to adjust the dose or change the drug in that patient. And in many cases, you don't have to do that. You can simply monitor the patient and watch for the occurrence of an adverse event because most of the time they don't happen. The fact of the matter is it's fairly rare, but sometimes they do happen. And and it's very difficult for a lot of prescribers and, and even pharmacists to be able to think of all of the variables that influence the risk the likelihood of that bad outcome happening. And I think that's one of the areas that we've been working with the signal group to try and develop better clinical decision support software that actually takes these variables into account so that when we give an alert to a prescriber about a potential problem in a patient, that it's much more likely to be an appropriate alert and not an alert that's not going to have a problem for that patient. And so that that requires a fair amount of of understanding of of both how the drugs work, how they interact, how very different patient and drug variables will affect that interaction, and then building algorithms to enable a computer to do what a good pharmacist can do up here in their head about figuring out whether or not this patient is particularly at risk or not, and and then, if they are, what should be done about it. So it's really a challenge. It's been, you know... I think we started writing about the problems with 
drug interaction software many years ago. And uh, it really hasn't improved any. I hate to say that. And that's one of the reasons why I'm really excited about the Signal software is that it really does what I think, as somebody who's been working in this field for over 40 years, is what needs to be done. And uh, they're not the mm-hmm. first ones to try it. It's been tried before. In fact, we've worked with people previously, none of whom were successful for a number of different reasons. Early on, the problem was the computers were too slow. They couldn't do the algorithms and the assessments fast enough. That problem is taken care of now because computers run much faster. And secondly, it was difficult for people to be able to put into the computer the kind of thought process, if you want to call it that, that the human brain goes through when it's making these assessments. And that's really the the uh, approach of using algorithms. It's a pretty reasonable way to do that. And then if you combine that with some AI and machine learning, you can use those algorithms as a starting point and build better algorithms based on feedback that you get from what happens to patients. So I'm really excited about it. I think this is the best thing that's happened in this field ever. <laughs> I don't think there's been anything that's good for a very long time. Since you, you mentioned thought processes as a very general question, how would you say that the thought process of a doctor differs from a thought process of a pharmacist? So just for a general understanding, as patients, we know that doctors are the ones that prescribe medications, so you expect them to know everything about the medications, if I generalize from a patient perspective, that's the idea that you have. And so what's the difference in the knowledge or the approach or thinking that the pharmacists have? Yeah, I hate to be general about this, but I'll try and respond that way. Certainly there are physicians who know a lot about drugs and there are some pharmacists who know for about about medicine. But understanding the training is very different. Physicians are trained to diagnose and treat disease states. Pharmacists are trained to understand and deal with drugs. And those two really intersect. And I think that's really been, in my lifetime, that's been the most exciting thing that I've seen is the integration of clinical pharmacy into the practice of medicine, where pharmacists are essentially there to provide information to the physician to enable them to do a better job with the patients they're taking care of. And certainly in the practice settings that I'm used to seeing, I've spent many years at the University of Washington Medical Center, where we have clinical pharmacists essentially with every physician all the time, in the clinics, in the hospital, everywhere. And it's a wonderful synergism that, that occurs. And the physicians understand where our expertise is, and they're not going to ask us to help them to you know, figure out whether this patient has pancreatitis or ulcerative colitis. That's not my bag. That's not a pharmacist's goal at all. But once the physician makes the, the, the decision about what it is they wish to treat, and if this patient is particularly complicated and it has, for example, a lot of other disease states or other drug therapies, that's an area where they can turn to the pharmacist to help get help about figuring out the best way to do that. Usually the answer is available, but sometimes it takes some digging. This is a lot of information. None of us have enough RAM in our heads to store all that. So it takes some time to dig the answers out. And I think I would, I really think that's a great role for the pharmacist. And it's not a great role for a physician. That takes a lot of their time. They can be spending that time taking care of patients. It's much more appropriate. So I, I think just the recognition that there's this potential for synergy between the two professions is, is something that's evolved over time now and is <clears throat> very well accepted in the United States. Almost all 
I don't know the numbers, but it's a very high percentage of medical centers certainly have clinical pharmacy practice involved. And that can include, there are places where pharmacists are doing some of the prescribing. And we see that in our anticoagulant. We have a pharmacist run anticoagulation clinic. We have pharmacists that work with heart failure patients. We have pharmacists who work with diabetic patients, burn patients, pain patients, a lot of areas where once the decision is made to treat a particular problem, if that's a chronic problem like hypertension, diabetes, chronic pain, then it becomes an issue often of just managing the drug therapy and making sure the patient is adherent, making sure that they aren't taking drugs on the outside, for example, over-the-counter products that might interfere with the drug therapy. And all of that is something that can be managed by a pharmacist who has some expertise in the area. So I I think that there is a nice blending that can occur here. I don't think that our training is very different. That's good. If we were all trained the same, we wouldn't be very helpful to each other. Yeah, I think that's one change that definitely has happened over time in medicine with cultural change. The fact that apart from encouraging the partnership relationship between the physician and the patient, there's also the partnership between the pharmacist and the doctor and knowing that the pharmacist is not um, trying to undermine the doctor because in some instances that was the impression from the physician's side that their authority was being not taken away from them but reduced a little bit. Yeah, I think that I think that has happened in the past, and and I I know when when we train pharmacists, I was a faculty member for many years. One of the one of the first things I would tell the pharmacists is if you're asked a question, the first thing you do is make sure you understand what the real question is. So you need to understand what you are being asked, and when you answer that question, you don't ever come back with a single answer. You provide the physician with multiple options, if they're available and let the physician choose the best option. So I think there's, I think that's just a, a, the right way to do it because at the end of the day, it's the physician's responsibility to take care of the patient. And I'm not going to usurp mm-hmm. that, but I'm going to do everything I can to help them do a better job, do the best job they can for that patient. And, and if that means I give them three or four options, fine. And I'd be happy to discuss with them the various options and what, what they might want to do with it. I, I think there's, it's really just a matter of having respect for each other and understanding that we approach things a little differently, but that's good. I think any time we can get better discussion about a patient's care, the better the patient's care is going to be. By the way, one question that's perhaps a little bit uh, difficult to answer, but still I'm curious. Do you by any chance know what's the uh, approximate number of medications that exist today? You know, all the drugs that are out there. Yeah, you know, What's it's, the appro- uh, yeah, it's been a number? while since I looked, but it, yeah, I think there's about 3,500 or 4,000 drugs. Now, there's many more products than that because there are different combinations and dosages and all of that sort of thing. This, I think there's around 4,000 drugs on the market, something like that. So it's, it's a pretty big number. But when you start looking at all the combinations, I have no idea how many there are. I mean, there's... <laughs> Hundreds of thousands, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, that's some, something to, to think about. You wrote the book, The Top 100 Drug Interactions, A Guide to Patient Management. Who do you recommend this book most to? The book is really aimed at, first of all, it's it, there's <laughs> the, the 
title of a joke, not an inside joke, because Phil Hanston, who's my co-author, and I would get calls from people saying, can't you just tell us the 10 most important drug interactions? We could learn those, and then we'd go on about our business. And so we thought, well, we can't call it the top 10, so we decided we call it the top 100. There's actually about 8,000 interactions in that book that we think are clinically important. So there's actually a lot of them in there. But beyond that, the book is really intended for prescribers or pharmacists. That's really the uh, audience. So we don't spend a lot of time talking about mechanisms of interactions and, and stuff that's of interest to researchers and people like me or faculty members who teach this stuff. We're really hopefully trying to, sit in a very few words, show f the prescriber or the pharmacist which drugs interact, what might happen because of that, and then more importantly, how to deal with it. We really would rather focus on management of a potential problem than understanding in great detail what the problem is. You, know, you can look that stuff up if you need to, but at the end of the day, it doesn't change a whole lot about what you, how you approach the solution to the problem. And so we, we were one of the very, I think we we're probably the first book and I don't even know how many years ago, that before the top 100 came out, we were publishing other stuff where we were talking about how to manage it. And that was because that's what physicians want to know. I and mean, they really don't care, you know, that if these two drugs interact, that it involves this enzyme and your left toe is going to fall off. And that's not the issue. They want to know, what do I do? If I think this is a problem, I want to avoid it. How do I avoid it? And I think that's mm -hmm. you know, from, a, from a patient endpoint, that's really the important one. Again, my whole f focus is let's not harm anybody. I mean, you do that by figuring out how to avoid the interaction. It's not, when it comes to medications, it's not just the interactions that are a puzzle sometimes. It's also the response a specific patient will have on a specific drug, which to a certain extent, mm -hmm. additionally explains why the whole field is so complex. So, for example, we have new therapies. The uh, medication space is changing in the direction of precision medicine, where uh, you really can be pretty sure, based on the uh, genetic uh, mark of a patient, if he is going to respond to a drug or not. So I wonder, to which extent do you think we need technologies for appropriate prescribing. And here I'm not talking yet about decision support system per se, but just the diagnostic tools, the liquid biopsy space, the gene space, genetic space to determine what's right for which patient. Yeah, that's certainly an upcoming and rapidly developing field. I'm not an expert in that area, but but we see it all the time. And I I think that the the individualization or personalization of medicine is interesting because you can break it in, into a couple of sections. And the one that you're talking about is the first piece. That is identifying what the problem is in the patient and then making a selection about how to approach that therapeutically. So that's the first decision that has to be made. And along, if it's an acute problem, that, that may require 10 days of antibiotic therapy or whatever. And it's over with, right? You, you chose the right drug, killed the bug, patient got better, everybody did fine. So that's pretty straightforward. When we get into more of the chronic therapy, then we get into the more of the difficulty where the patient's going to be on these drugs for a long time, and they may well change, and their disease state may well change. So it's not a static sort of phenomena. And at that point, the initial assessment that was made may not continue to 
suggest the same therapeutic approach. We see this with chronic pain patients, for example, or diabetic patients, or patients with heart failure. I mean, any of the chronic diseases tend to progress. It's just the the way they are. And as they progress, we have to adjust and, and change our therapy. So there is this application, I think, of the same kind of logic that helps to identify what to start therapy with that then can be applied as you work with a patient over years and continue to try and give them the best medication approach that produces the best efficacy and the minimal amount of side effects. Mm -hmm. And if we go back a little bit to the decision support systems and the prescribing process, we mentioned how inefficient, unfortunately, the decision support systems are at the moment because they just offer too many alerts and not all of them are clinically significant. So how do you see the further development of decision support systems? The obvious hope here is the increased computing power, artificial intelligence, incorporating all the characteristics of an individual to the decision-making process already in the computer. So given everything that you saw that already failed, in decision support software, where do you see is the future? Yeah, I think there's a, I'm not much of a fortune teller, but I think that there's a sort of a a whole series of things that could be done here. And let me just start with the obvious stuff, because there's a whole bunch that is just being ignored right now. So that all of the legacy clinical decision support systems, particularly from the standpoint of drug management, which is my expertise, so I'm going to talk about that are binary. You either alert or you don't alert. That's it. And if you're faced with the decision, do I put the alert in the system or not? If I leave it out, what if somebody gets hurt? That's bad. So they put the alert in, even though it only happens one in a hundred, one in a thousand, one in 10,000 times. And that's what's produced all these false, inappropriate, positive alerts that occur and produces this alert fatigue that is so common. That doesn't have to be that way. And I think that's what really has been happening with the signal software, which, as I said, I think is a really totally different approach to this, where you're not saying yes, no on an alert. You're saying yes, maybe. And based on, let's look at the features that we can identify that will increase the risk of a patient to have a bad effect from this particular drug pair or this particular drug. And those are things we know how their kidneys work, we know if their liver is okay, we know what their laboratory values are, we know what their age is, we know what their gender is. We know sometimes what their genetics are, and we'll learn more about that as we go along. There's a whole host of things that we can look at to help us make that decision. And they're all there. They're all available. They're all in the EHR, in the electronic health record. Signal's the only system that goes into the record, pulls that information out, runs it through the algorithms, and then makes a decision about whether to trigger an alert or not. Clinical decision support is designed to support the physician's decision-making. It's not making decisions for patients. It's to help them make a decision. And so we want to take all the relevant information we can, which is patient-specific, drug-specific, and integrate that and then give the, patient, give the physician the information they need to be able to make a decision. So that's easy. I mean, that's not easy, but that's available today. We've got that. 
Now, to move on beyond that and some of the areas that you brought up, genetics is a good example here. We just don't have genetic information on very many patients. And that's too bad because genetics is a one-in-a-lifetime test. You get it once, your genetics never change, and that's it. And when that becomes a little less expensive, if it was 50 bucks, every baby would have it done. There'd be no reason not to. And you'd have then the genetic profile for that human for the rest of their life for $50. What? what why would you not do that? So that's that will come. I think that's going to come along quickly. How that how well that gets applied to things will will somewhat be dependent on how important the genetic piece is to the variability. That's always the issue. So if the, mm-hmm. for some drugs, uh, genetics are very important in how patients either respond to the drug f- from a clinical standpoint, from an efficacy standpoint, how they respond from a side effect standpoint, and that we we can figure that out because of what we know about the drugs. We just need to know the genetic piece. So there's going to be some places where it's going to be very helpful. There'll be some places where it probably won't work very well, but that's okay. That's true of everything. AI is an interesting approach, and that's been looked at from the standpoint of trying to identify interactions. I, I don't find that very helpful at this point, and I think the primary problem is, and I'm probably going to get shot for saying this, but... Some of the folks that are doing the AI work are really good statisticians and really good with computer stuff, but they don't know much about drugs. And so they see a relationship where two drugs appear to produce a adverse event, whatever the outcome is that they're looking for, more commonly than they expect. And so they say, gee, this, this looks like it could be a, this must be an interaction between these two drugs causing this output. The problem is that unless I can figure out a physiologic basis for that, it's probably not correct. I often tell students, if you see something that doesn't look quite right, there's exactly two reasons for that, especially when you're talking about drugs effects. Either you don't know enough about the drug to be able to figure out why it does it, or it's wrong. That's it. There's only two reasons. You can't change the rules of pharmacology and physiology. They're pretty standard. Humans have been around for a while, and we've got the rules down pretty good. So I think AI has an interesting approach. It's very good at raising questions. It doesn't answer very many. But that's okay because we need new ways to look at large databases, populations, to find out how often does this particular interaction cause a problem? In whom is this Mm -hmm. more at risk? Are are red-headed, left-handed people more likely to get this than dark-haired, right-handed people? That's the kind of stuff that you can't get by looking at 40 patients. You need 40 million to get that number. So, you know, mm. I, I think all these things have a place. It, it's really hard right now to figure out where the ones that are in the future are going to fit, but that's okay because we got a lot we can work on right now and make things a lot better just with what we have, which is a lot of information. Mm-hmm. I have two or three follow-up questions for the segment that you just uh, had. I have to challenge you a bit regarding how much we know about the human body. My impression is constantly that when we try to figure out something and when progress happens, it's great, but then there's some side effect to that and we're like, oh, we figured out something, but actually we just realized how much we still don't know, which makes medicine fascinating. And given the given that you said that we could figure out pharmacogenomics, I wonder, so how would you say what's the current state of using genetics and the knowledge about genomics for the help with prescribing? It's a strong field in oncology. 
but in in a more broader sense, to which extent is it already useful? Yeah, I think I think probably oncology is the best example. That's really where there's been a fair amount of of really good work done. You've got that's that's a great place to start because you got disease that's bad, right? The outcomes are not good, and you've got drugs that are really toxic. And so if you can figure out ways to get better treatment, better outcome, and at the same time reduce the toxicity, that's really important. So so that is a great example of where I think pharmacogenetics play a huge role. I'll give you an example where I don't think it's worked very well, and that is with the prescribing of the anticoagulant warfarin. And, and warfarin is metabolized by a number of different enzymes in the body, a couple of which are, are all under genetic control. But, but the primary pathway for warfarin metabolism, there are some patients who have a lot of that <clears throat> particular enzyme and other patients who don't have much of that enzyme. And so the idea was if we could figure out who's a fast or a slow metabolizer, we could figure out what the best drug dose of warfarin would be. And the it's just not worked very well. And the reason why it doesn't work very well is because we have a really easy way to measure a patient's response to warfarin. It's called an INR. It's a simple lab test. It's a finger prick. I don't even need to do a venipuncture to get it. So by the time you do the genetics and figure out what your dose is, most patients you'll already know what the answer is because you'll be following their INRs. So it's an area where it certainly is interesting from a research standpoint, but I think it's very applicable or practical. Now, the reason why it doesn't work very well with warfarin is that the genetics probably accounts for less than 30% of the variability of a patient's response. There's a huge number of things that affect warfarin response, things like diet um, and exercise, disease states. It just goes on and on and on. So it's not surprising to me that one particular variable isn't particularly helpful. And I think that's probably why. But that's okay, because we're learning a lot about how to apply the genetics, pharmacogenetics to drugs. And I think it's a great lesson to learn. We, we need to, when we're going to focus on drugs with pharmacogenetics, we really need to find drugs that have specific issues, whether it's efficacy or, or toxicity, that are very highly related and correlated with the genetics. We've still got a ways to go with genetics because there's hundreds of polymorphisms of these genes and very few of them have been studied enough to know exactly what they do. Is this a 50% reduction in effect or is it a 100% reduction in effect of the enzyme? And, and those are very different numbers and will produce a very different response in patients. So there's still a ways to go, but I'm pretty pretty happy with what I see from the research that I see coming out of the groups that are working on this. They're doing a great job with it. Uh, it's just going to take some time. Mm -hmm. It would be really helpful if we had a lot more people who are being genetically screened. If we knew, if we had better data, more data, I think that would really solve this pretty quickly. Yeah, it's a huge problem that I think has been highlighted recently a lot, especially in the U.S., about the need for diversity in research, in samples, and being mindful that we don't build in a bias in tools like AI because it's based on samples that are not diverse as the population is. Yeah, that's clearly a problem when you start doing these population studies is just exactly who is the population that you're studying. And that that's tough because there's a big difference in the genetics across populations. So it's, and it's, I think it's, it's to me, it's exactly the same problem is that if you're studying a drug that's eliminated by the kidneys from the body, 
and you study the effect of renal disease, who are your renal disease patients? Because that can be anybody from a 20 or a 30% reduction to someone who has very little kidney function is on dialysis. That's a big difference, right? And it's the same kind of thing with genetics, big differences across the populations. So you have to be cognizant of, of that and, and plan your studies and gather your data appropriately or at least know the limitations of the data that you've got. That's mostly what I think the people who work in this area are very cognizant of that problem and say, this is what we found based on this population. It may not apply to a, a different population in wherever, but in our population, this is what we found. And that's good. It's all part of the scientific process. Ten years ago, we didn't even know what genes were. We? This is an area, this is a field that's brand new. So we're really moving quickly, I think. This has been one of the amazing things about genetics is how fast the, the, and it's all based on the technology, just the ability to be able to, to get the code and get it less expensively. That's definitely some food for thought. I just have one more question for you, and that is what's the most scary thing to you when it comes to drug interactions? I tend not to be frightened by drug interactions because I work in that area all the time. I think the... Uh, wow. I think the problem to... The, the, the thing that concerns me the most is that we are just not using our knowledge very well. You know, the, especially when you think about this from a clinical decision support standpoint, because that's really where all these things get picked up is in the cl clinical decision support level. That's where it's happening. And we got all the software out there, a number of programs that are available, try to do clinical decision support in the drug interaction, and they do a really bad job at it. The, the comparison we did with the signal and one of the standards in the U.S., there was a, an enormous difference in the number of alerts that were triggered and in the specificity and sensitivity of those alerts. And that's too bad. Um, I, I guess the thing that always makes me stop and think about this is that everybody who studies drug interactions and how they're dealt with by prescribers in a clinical setting, they find that about 95% of the alerts that are triggered are ignored. Nothing happens. They don't do, physicians do nothing, okay? Now, if you developed some software and it was wrong 95% of the time, wouldn't you think that was a problem? Wouldn't you want to fix that somehow? Apparently not. Nobody seems to care. And, you know, it's not like nobody gets harmed by those interactions because sometimes they do. And that's troublesome to me. So I'm really excited about the possibility that we actually are going to start seeing software developed, and it's been developed, that gets around that problem, that really provides clinicians with useful information that's specific to their patient-specific, personalized clinical decision support in the area of drug-related problems. I think that's a perfectly approachable doable thing right now with the data we have available to us. And it's not something we're going to wait for the future to develop. We've got it. It's doable now. So I think that's really important. And this, the fact that physicians ignore this stuff is troublesome to me. We still see reports of patients dying from drug interactions that were described 40 and 50 years ago. There's no excuse for that. And the only reason that happens is that when that alert goes off, they say, Ignore it. And then you get a bad outcome. That's a bad thing. 
We don't want that to happen. Yeah, it's several factors impact the patient harm that happens due to medications. And I think many experts would agree that it's very hard to expect that we will ever get to zero harm. The hope is to decrease the alerts to the minimum. And I think compared to many other sciences, if you looked at healthcare IT as a science, it's a very a young one in healthcare. So my impression is that we are now slowly entering the second age or phase two of healthcare IT and clinical decision support systems. We tried the basics. We know tons of things that don't work, overburdening the physicians, etc., etc., etc. And now it's time to really make support systems and solutions that are user-friendly and useful, and because they're useful, they're also used and have an impact on patient safety. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's really a good observation. This is a fairly new science, and it's an area where computerization can be very helpful. The computer is only as good as the information it's got, and I think that's been one of the difficulties. The information is laying there in the, emer in the um, electronic medical record. It's just been ignored. And it's very difficult. I think you, you asked earlier about physicians who, how well do they know drug interactions? The usual physician probably knows 10 or 20 drugs really well, because that's what they use all the time. But a cardiologist doesn't know much about oncology drugs. A neurologist doesn't know much about cardiology drugs. So the problem for many patients is not that they have a single disease. They have multiple diseases, and they start seeing multiple physicians for that. And who's the arbitrator of all of these potential alerts and interactions that can occur from multiple physicians. And I will guarantee you the physician does not want to do that. There's, I've never met a physician who was willing to change a different physician's prescribing. They just don't do that. And I understand that. That makes sense. But that's where pharmacists can play a role because we're, we have no, we don't have a dog in that fight. We're just trying to take care of the patient. That's all. And we'll be happy to talk to both physicians to see if we can figure out a, a different way to do it. And that's, I think that's an area, again, where the computerization has helped, but it just, you, you need this better presentation of the information to the prescribers. And then in some cases, you need the pharmacist to help with that. And I think pharmacists are more than willing to do that. And that's one of the things they, I think, really think is their, one of their roles is to try and be in, involved in that kind of decision process. And an additional challenge there is, if we look at the global scale, that clinical pharmacists are not included yet in the healthcare system in this capacity, as you can see it in the U.S. Maybe uh, the last comment from you, I don't know to which extent did you look at the presence of clinical pharmacists in the clinical setting across the world. It's a bit of a tough one. Yeah, no, that's really true. And I was fortunate when I was starting out to be one of the early <laughs> clinical pharmacists. I was in several hospitals where I was the only clinical pharmacist. We have probably 140 of them in our hospital. It's, and I understand that. And it, it's taken time. And I think that certainly other parts of the world where it's not become as prevalent, that's going to be a matter of, have, first of all, you have to train the pharmacist to be clinical pharmacists. They're not just dispensers of medication. They have to be able to do some other things. And so the education has to be there. And I think once that happens, then it becomes pretty natural that because that essentially is what clinical pharmacists provide. They provide education. That's what they do. They provide information to the prescribers. That's their role. 
And they provide information to patients. They provide information to nurses. They provide information to everybody. That's what they do. They don't prescribe drugs very often. Sometimes they do. It's really an information person. And I think that's, my goodness, having com- good computer systems to support that is wonderful. I, I would be in a world of hurt if we didn't have PubMed, for example. If I couldn't find literature on, online, I clearly remember spending hours in the library looking stuff up in journals back in the old days. I, don't, I haven't been in a library in 50 years. It's, different now. I appreciate that. Um, but I think it's, I think it's, it's certainly the U.S. has got a, a big lead in this area and, and Great Britain's done very well. Canada, there's a lot of the you know, more developed countries and, and I, I'm sorry that it hasn't picked up in other areas. I think there's lots of reasons for that, but I think that's going to come along. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. You can also go to www.lovethepodcast.com slash Faces of Digital Health and you'll be redirected to the platform appropriate for the device you're using. Stay tuned!